Good morning. We are all about the Bridget this week. Bridget, Bridget, Bridget. When rain fell on the path of stone, one by one, we appeared alone. Each of us wore a different face, but we were all the same. Drawn by ache to lift green latches, drawn by want to walk the dark passage, past paper stairs, we knelt and wept. We who fed the well in rivulets. Whose plunged wrists trembled with vessels of blue violets. We each spoke a spell of stone and in her gloom heard prayers turn poems. Ask her, breathe. What will become of us? Liquid, the syllables, the echo, echo. luminous. Well, that'll wake you up. At Bridget's Well by Dera Nigrifa and read there by Ozara Asms, as heard on Arena. And we will go full on Bridget later. Oh yes. But for now, let us go to the issue that continues to dominate the news. Accommodation for asylum seekers and refugees. Yesterday, Minister for Integration Roderick O'Gorman wrote to government departments urgently seeking buildings, any hall, where camp beds, mattresses or sleeping bags can be set out for people arriving here. All this against the backdrop of some protests taking place around the country at existing plans to house people. On Morning Ireland, Anya put this to reporter Alva Keneally. What what does that say about the scale of the need right now? Yeah, and I mean, this, re, I suppose, reinforces um, last Monday, they came out saying we'll take, you know, four to, you know, four to six buildings nationwide. And now I suppose this letter explains what kind of buildings they're looking for. Um, but if, if we go back to the, the, the protests, you know, um, underpinning this, and there was a protest in Mullingar last night, um, around 300 people showed up. Uh, many locals were there. There were also some supporters from Dublin in attendance. It was peaceful. They walked from the gates of Colin Barracks. Um, and this is a plan, to, uh, this is a protest about a plan that f- to accommodate refugees within the on the barracks grounds. Is that right? That's right. Intense. And it's 120 that they plan to accommodate. Um, so it was a peaceful protest. Um, the concern there was that, yeah, 120 men were being moved into tents on the grounds of the barracks. Now, the Department of Children has said it would be temporary refugee accommodation and that the intention was that no person would stay more than a number of weeks before they're moved on. But two women from the area expressed their concerns to our colleague Laura Fletcher. And while this clip you're about to hear, it does go into these women's particular concerns. It's important to say that there's no evidence that these men coming into the barracks pose any threat. Because we don't want strangers. I, I particularly don't want strangers around my children. My children have been boxing there for four years. They come here five nights a week. But now I'm afraid to let my kids come here. I'm afraid that there's going to be strangers around them. 
Like, there's I, a youth reach for little kids, teenagers. You know, scaring a lot of men right behind them. No, and we don't know them. Even so, everybody's struggling. Like, we understand some of them are struggling, but, but why is it 120 men coming into that barracks? Like, I just don't understand it. I don't think it should be allowed. I don't think they should be allowed in our local barracks. From Morning Ireland. On Liveline with Joe, also from Mullingar, this is Matthew. Personally, from my opinion, I just think, I think, I, I look at it from, if, if roles were reversed and, for instance, uh, we were in a situation where we had to flee our country and I'd hate for myself or my girlfriend or my future children to be getting off a bus to abuse. I just think it's an absolute disgrace. And he took issue with one particular description. I, a common thing that I'm, I'm seeing being thrown around is... Um, of military age, these people should be staying. Now, mm. now, I'm probably focusing primarily on the Ukrainians there. Mm. Joe, I love living in Ireland, but if we went to war, I'd be on the first plane out. Okay. I wouldn't be staying around. I've no, I've no, I'm not patriotic in any way, any sense. If I had a family, I'd be trying to get us out as quick as possible. I wouldn't be hanging around. I don't mm. understand this whole thing that people should stay and fight. Other people who are at these protests, maybe they're... They'd stay in fight till, till their, last, their last breath, but it wouldn't be for me. But with increasing numbers of people arriving to Ireland and increasing numbers of protests, do you put this to Matthew? And what should be done? Well, I'm not sure. Like, you know, the way I look at it is these people seem to have been dropped in Mullingar. Um, I'm not sure if, if you can blame the government. Um, mm. I believe... They could be more transparent. It, it could be a simple case of the local TD, the local councillors, informing you these guys and girls and people are going to be here for X amount of time. We're going to try to have them moved by X date. They're going to be living in Y and this is how we're going to move with it. I think a lot of the frustration, while I completely disagree with a lot of, a lot of the opinion that I saw last night, I think a lot of people's frustration comes from the unknown of yeah. how long these people may be living in, in their vicinity. From Liveline yesterday and just a small insight into a discussion that no doubt we will be returning to. For now though, let's go somewhere completely different. The bat-eared among you might have heard a certain sweet, sour, salty, bitter, even umami licking to the airwaves this week. With Ray, Phil Rosenthal, he wrote the sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond, but now he has a food and travel series, Somebody Feed Phil. A dream job, and Ray might want it, but it was quite the slog to get it. I'm very envious of you. You <laughs> can't be people. jealous anymore, you just have to be envious, it's a softer thing. Alright, so let me tell you, you know, it, I, I know people think I, after I made... Uh, the sitcom, yes. uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, that I could just do whatever I wanted. It took me 10 years to get this show. You know, the the industry doesn't really welcome change that way. If you walk into your agent's office after having had a little success in the sitcom world and you say, you know what I'd like to do now is a food and travel show, they look at you as if you've murdered their pets, right? Yeah. They, don't, they don't see any money in that. And so it took 10 years to right. convince people. By the time we graduated from that show, everybody wanted hipper and edgier shows. Right. And they kept coming to me, can you just be more hip and edgy? And you hip said- and edgy. Well, you got the right guy. I'm Mr. <laughs> hip and edgy. <laughs> you know how I sold the show? I sold it with one line. Finally, after 10 years, I was ready. Right. I walked into PBS originally, and I said, I'm exactly like Anthony Bourdain if he was afraid of everything. Uh-huh. 
when I would watch Bourdain, I would say, he's amazing. I'm never doing that. Yeah. But maybe there's a show for the guys on the couch like me who say the same thing. Yeah. And maybe, Phil, there is a delicacy, a particularly Irish delicacy, that you might like. A crisp sandwich. Oh yes, as close to a pint of the black stuff for Ray at this stage. He is partial to the crisp sandwich. Fresh white bread. Are you kidding me? With Irish butter and Irish crisps. You're kidding. In the middle, no. I've never heard of such a thing. Have you not? Starch on starch with butter? (laughs) (laughs) This is a... My trainer's going to have a heart attack. Yeah, that was the only thing I was going to ask about. I need a knife? Well, you can cut it down the middle. Will you have a half with me? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if you wanted a triangular or you're, you're cutting straight across. I'm guessing okay, this is going to crunch when I cut it. Yeah, because it's crisps. That's the they're on a matter of Look, listen to that. Oh, it's a crisp sandwich on a Monday afternoon. This Holy is decadent cow. beyond belief. Oh it's my bold, God. Phil. You've been bold. This is this is a five-year-old <laughs> Phil's dream sandwich. People eat this. People, people, people do. Yeah. All right, my friend, here you go. Oh, oh yeah. my God, oh, okay. what a delight this is. Here we go. Okay. Let's bite it together so we get so we deafen our listeners. Ready? Okay, here we go. One, One two, two, three. three. Mm. Wait a minute. See? You get, are these salt and vinegar chips? No, cheese and onion. Cheese and onion. So, <laughs> come on, Phil. Honest now. Honest. Honest. What's not to like? <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's everything you imagine it would be. I mean, this is naughty. I'm having another bite. <laughs> there you go. That's, he's back for more. Wow, that's fun. <laughs> um, uh, by the way, I'm served a lot of food. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Not sure about that. With wine, on the other hand, mushrooms. Walking into a kitchen where mushrooms are being tortured in a pan with water, I can, I, I, I have to leave. Get off that fence. But fungi in the food chain and beyond, fascinating stuff. What is a fungus? Um, a fungus is a microbe, a very simple microbe uh, that can grow without the need to make energy from light. That separates it from plants. So plants need to make energy from sunlight, photosynthesis. So they're very simple. Uh, there's two main types. There are yeasts, which we know for making bread and for making uh, beer, the alcohol in beer. And then also filamentous fungi that people might see growing on, say, bread, mouldy bread. That's one of the filamentous fungi. So two basic growth forms. That is Professor of Microbiology Kevin Kavanagh from Maynooth University. But let's stick with the bread. Now, When we see that, it's green, it's ugly, it's powdery if it's left long enough, and it is considered to be the enemy. Uh, should, should we treat that mouldy bread with a little more respect, or should we just bin it and say, out damn spot? Well, in, indeed, at that stage, we should bin it, of course. We shouldn't consume it because there yes. is a, there's a small chance that you know, it would cause sickness and, and so on. But, however, a fungus like what grows on mouldy bread mm-hmm. is one of the ones that produces penicillin, which oh. is one of the main antibiotics for treating bacterial infections. And the discovery of penicillin in the 1920s and the 1930s has led to the treatment of hundreds of millions of people uh, and saved their lives. So even though it looks, you know, unpleasant on mouldy bread, you know, it's one of its cousins produces penicillin, which has revolutionised medicine. 
But what happens when a good fungus goes bad, infects us and tries to kill us? The premise of the video game and now the TV show, The Last of Us. The type of fungus that they're describing in The Last of Us are known as the cordyceps. And these do infect insects and uh, spiders and they do take over their behaviour, take over their brain, if you like, and then eventually they burst out uh, of the insect and spread their spores to infect other insects. Now, these fungi, they're highly specialised. The particular fungi, they're specialised to particular insects and they're quite effective in warm uh, regions. So think of the tropics. Can they cause infection in humans? Well, not really. OK, I'll draw a line across a zombie apocalypse. Phew. And that brings us to more food. I just love it so much. The smellier, the better. I just, I'd eat it all the time if I could. He speaks of cheese. Not just a slice of cheddar or maybe even a densely processed triangle, no. For writer Paul Howard, it is all about the stench. His second book for children is called Aldrin Adams and the Legend of Nemesis. And he joined Miriam. This kid, Aldrin Adams, he's eight years of age. When he eats cheese, just before he goes to sleep at night and he thinks really, really hard about somebody, he can get into their nightmares (laughs) and help them with whatever's troubling them, whatever's worrying them when, when they're asleep. Once you once you explain that to a kid, it's like it's like saying the Harry Potter books. He's a kid. He's in wizard school and kids go, yeah, OK. And they'll believe anything you tell them after that. And when he does a reading, he does like to waft into the room. There's a cheese called Limburger, which you can't really buy in Ireland. Like you couldn't go to Sheridan's and say, do you have any Limburger? But it's it's notoriously the smelliest cheese in the world. <laughs> and uh, Mary, my wife and I, we were in Berlin and we went to this cheese shop. They cut me some Limburger and they said, you know, there are even smellier cheeses than this. <laughs> so we bought three or four of them, uh, brought them back to Ireland. They vacuum packed them for us because I was doing a cheese event. Uh, and, you know, the idea is I, I sort of I bring the cheeses out and say to the kids, just like I'm, I'm licensed by the government to handle these cheeses. You can't handle them for more than five seconds, but just smell what's in the bag. And they are absolutely vile smelling. And when I opened the vacuum packing, I had to take a step backwards. <laughs> and the fun of kind of introducing those cheeses to an audience of kids, it was just, it's its so much Because so they much just fun. love fun. Yeah, yeah, they love anything that's kind of disgusting and yeah. smelly. And that's the, that's the fun of writing a book like Aldrin Adams because I describe the cheeses and I describe why they're so smelly. Uh, for instance, there's one cheese that smells of smelly feet. And the reason it smells of smelly feet is because it's the same bacteria involved in smelly feet that's involved in in this particular cheese. Uh, And kids just love hearing that stuff. And while writing for children is a different beast from his Ross O'Carroll Kelly creations, the seeds of both that were sown in the playground. I was born in England. We moved to Ireland in 1979. Those years, 79, 80, 81, they weren't the... The, the best years to be walking around with a Cockney accent in an Irish school. And I was, I was, re- I was proper Grange Hill kid. Like I was, oh, I might watch ya. And um, you know, during the years that those those years in particular of the troubles to have an accent like that in an Irish school was mm. pretty was pretty tough. And um, so yeah, I, I would have kind of seen myself as an outsider. You know, I was quite, I was a scrawny kid. 
I had glasses. My nickname was Buddy Holly in school because they were those kind of national health, health glasses, service, yeah. which are quite fashionable now. I'm yeah, told. really fashionable. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I would have seen myself as a bit of an outsider, definitely. And do you think that impacted on you long term or not? Um, I mean, not in a serious way. I think it it made me the kind of person who sort of stepped back and looked at things. I think I'm an observer. I've always been an observer. I was never one for peer pressure uh, as a as a child, as a teenager or as an adult. Like I never kind of felt like everybody's doing this thing. So I should do this thing as mm -hmm. well. I was the one who kind of stood back and went, why is everybody doing that thing? That's a little bit absurd. And I think that kind of fed into the Ross O'Carroll Kelly thing as well. I think that's why I kind of looked at that whole lifestyle madness that was happening during those Celtic Tiger years. Like my friends uh, who I grew up with in Ballybrack uh, <laughs> having hot tubs fitted in their back gardens, <laughs> that kind of thing. And I, I remember sitting in this hot tub with, my, with a friend of mine and his whole family. It was just the <laughs> weirdest thing. Like, you know, we're all sort of semi-naked at three o'clock in the afternoon in this hot tub. And I think I looked at that and kind of, I was able to see the absurdity of it. I think that's I think that's true, yeah, because I was on the outside. And for Miriam, he set out his working day. I get up early in the morning. I get up at about five o'clock every morning and I start work. Yeah. Why? Good question, Miriam. Well, I've just discovered that my brain is more active at that time. My brain is more, is more creative at that time. So I'll get up at five and I'll work until maybe one. And then the afternoon, the afternoon, forget it. That's when I tend to do emails and stuff like that because yeah. um, it's my day. It feels like in my, in my mind, like my day is done. Bet it does. 5am. But to finish where we began, he may love the cheese. The camembert does not love him back. The curse of it for me is it gives me nightmares. I, when I eat cheese, especially before I go, just before I go to bed, I just know I'm having disrupted, strange dreams that night. That is a cruelty. Writer Paul Howard with Miriam. On Sunday Miscellany, a more serious reminder of how evocative food can be. The essay was called Little Cows. It was written by Oliver Sears. And it was a story about how even the smallest of morsels can take us right back in time. He spoke of a Polish fudge called Krofki. And for his mother, a small child during the Second World War, this sweet would take on a disturbing importance. For my mother Monica, Krofki featured regularly in her infancy in Poland. For in 1944, Monica was forced to hide under a table all day while her mother went out to work. The five-year-old was warned never to come out and under no circumstances go to the window or a German monster would devour her. For companionship, she had a book, a doll and a potty. Her daily reward for being good was presented to her by her mother, two krufki, to be sucked, savoured and slowly swallowed. To train an infant not to cry out and to stay in one place on pain of death is such a disturbing proposition. But for Jews hiding in Nazi-occupied Poland, choices had to be made that are unimaginable today for you or me. Monica was an especially self-contained child. She did not always rush out to greet her mother the moment she returned home in the evening. She would lose herself in mythical fantasies she'd created with dragons and princesses. 
One day, Monica did venture to the window. When she did, a sniper's bullet singed her hair and buried itself in the wall opposite. What Monica feared most was her mother's wrath at such flagrant disobedience, without any understanding that she had come within a hair's breadth, literally, of losing her head. She had learned by then that obedience was neither an advisory nor an optional extra. It was the code you accepted to try to live for one more day. And live she did, going on to carve out her own life as an adult in London. But some things are difficult to forget. Thirty years later, a lucky dip bag of sweets. Monica put her hand in the bag and pulled out a small rectangle with a yellow wrapper and the logo of a cow. It was exactly as she remembered it. She was flawed, subjugated once again to the stricture of Warsaw kindergarten etiquette. She could not believe her eyes. A bag of golden nuggets snatched from nostalgia? No. This unexpected reappearance of her once daily reward for obeying her mother grabbed her by both ankles and upended her. In a winking eye, the constructs that Monica had assembled to redefine her identity as a well-groomed English lady disappeared like a desert mirage. This new facade had been erected so painfully during the period she herself describes as her second childhood. But by the time she married, she could dip automatically between a world governed by fear and suspicion that was the habitat of her parents and the sunnier life of a new family and motherhood. Occasionally, a spark would fly from the vault of memories she kept locked away, a reminder that her early childhood would never abandon her. From now on, Krufke would only ever taste bittersweet. Oliver's series with his essay Little Cows from Sunday Miscellany. And with Vine, why should Thomas Keneally author of, among other things, Schindler's Ark, the basis for the Spielberg film Schindler's List? One day in 1981, the Australian Keneally went into a leather bag shop in Beverly Hills. The owner, Leopold Pfefferberg, started telling him a true story. You know, I was saved in the Holocaust by uh, a Nazi uh, but although he was a Nazi, he was Jesus Christ. But although he was Jesus Christ, he was not a saint. He was all all joking, all screwing, all black marketeering. Oscar Schindler. <laughs> and a very good summary, actually, I thought of very. the story. And he brings Keneally to the back of the shop where he meets Leopold's wife. This. Mila and she's attending to repairs, and he has a couple of filing cabinets full of Schindleriana that he put together when Schindler was alive. There are pictures in there that you wouldn't believe, pictures that the world didn't have then of concentration camps that were taken by a, an Austrian manager inside Poishov. And, of course, various testimonies and the list. And you look at the list and there is... Poldek uh, Pfefferberg, and I think he's described as a Schleiser, which I think is a welder. And then she's described, this former medical student, as a metal arbiter. She's never arbited, she's never worked with metal in her life, but she has become a metal worker. And you have these two vivid, a quiet woman and a loud man, 
these two vivid folk in front of you who are in the fullness of their life, they're middle-aged, and you think, what is it about you that killing you was essential to Western civilization? The people who were after you wanted to kill you because you were a virus on Western civilization. Yet here you are selling nice cases and purses and stuff like that, and you don't seem to be killing Western culture as you stand here. (laughs) Keneally's book Schindler's Ark was published in 1982, and Ryan put this to him. Do you still find it emotional talking about it? Mm, It it can be, just occasionally. When does it catch you? Uh, Particularly when I think the people died to make this story. They didn't know they were making a story. They just thought they were having their oxygen taken from them for whatever reason. And they didn't understand the reason, or they well, they knew it was like the the Russian pogroms, and the, mm. they knew that it was historically this occasional rising of the troops and going into the ghetto and killing a couple of maidens or rabbis or uh, uh, church elders, and then the the the, the local uh, gentry getting them under control again and saying. You've gone too far, you know. But I'm glad you killed a few of them because it puts them in their place. Uh, And uh, they'd always been able to negotiate their way out of catastrophe before. And one of the problems was they never realised that this was not to be negotiated. So they went into the Holocaust in a negotiable frame of mind and the Nazis weren't going to negotiate. Thomas Keneally, author of Schindler's Ark with Ryan. Back in a bit. Welcome back. February 1st, the Celtic Spring is in and with it Imbolg and St Bridget's Day. But for Kildare's Darcy, us bandwagon Bridget's, pa. He was all about the underground years before she went mainstream. Oh, in a few years' time, we, I'll be regretting ever talking about St. Bridget on the radio because, you know, it's, it's like one of those songs you have, you know, your secret song, uh, and, you, you know, you, you like it, you know it's good, but not everybody else knows it's good. And then it gets re-released or it's featured on an ad or in a movie or on Stranger Things, and then everybody likes it. And, and your little secret's gone, your little thing. Uh, and I was, you know, delighted at the fact that St. Bridget was, was ours from Kildare, and now everybody owns her. Anyway, she's given us a... A day off on Monday. Uh, so thanks, Aunt Bridget. You big sellout. But with Bridget having quite the moment, there is something of a county off when it comes to claiming her. On Morning Ireland, Laura Hogan went to Kildare and spoke to Rita Minahan. Actually, Kildare owes its existence to St. Bridget. She was the founder of a double monastery for women and men and a church here in Kildare towards the end of the 5th century. And she was an extraordinary leader, you know, spiritual leader, way ahead of her time. You know, when you look back now, she certainly blazed a trail for female leadership in Ireland in the 5th century. But Louth too lay claim to Bridget's birthplace. Here is Roisin Cotter. People are very interested in all aspects of Bridget, the saint and the older Bridget. She's very enduring as a a symbol for women, for everyone really, a symbol of 
generosity, openness, care for everyone, care for nature and the land. One of the fabulous stories about Bridget is that a local chieftain wanted to marry her and he came down to the stream to find her. And she was kneeling down here on the knee stone and you can see the two big indents where she was kneeling. But she didn't want to get married, she wanted to be independent. So she decided she would make herself less attractive. She plucked out her eye, it landed over on the eye stone over there. And when he came down, he didn't recognise her. So he went off again and left her. And then God restored her eye and she became beautiful again. And she was free to live her own life and dedicate herself to God. Plucking out her own eyeball, my goodness. But as this clip from Morning Ireland shows, there are and have been many ways and traditions to honour Bridget. The, the eve of St Bridget, you hang out a rag. Yeah, no, hang out a rag. Your clothesline. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then St Bridget is supposed to bl- fly over and bless the uh, rag, the cloth, we'll say. And actually, we still do that. I would never, ever, I always put out of a ribbon. And you keep it for a year. I'd always give, um, pass around, you know, the first milk, the beasts they used to call yeah. it. The cow, after the cow came. They'd boil it in a pot. Yeah. And give a big jug of it to each neighbour. Yeah. It was beautiful. Oh, they would <laughs> do that till very recently. <clears throat> well, the people who lived next door to us on Gleave Street, they kept a cow out the back. I don't, the cow was grazed by grace and favour up the street in another man's land. Mm. And that cow would be brought down and brought into the house. And there was a lot of little houses on our street that hadn't a lot of money to spare, so they wouldn't have a quart of milk no. bought from the milkman. But they might take a cup or a small jug and they'd say, run down and get a drop of milk in so-and-so's house. Well, if you died for that sort of milk, you had to wait until the cow was milked and the can of milk brought in and three teaspoonfuls of holy water put in it. From Morning Ireland. And there does seem to be a bit of an overlap between our devotion to the Christian saint and our Celtic roots and the goddess. With Sean and Arena, Clodagh Doyle, a keeper of the Irish Folklore Division at the National Museum of Ireland Country Life in Cundaweo. I think there's an awful lot of things that you do, even even in in with Bridget in, and Holy Wells. Anything that kind of when you welcome somebody in, or you pass mm. through something, or you come through a door, and even there is that Brideswell in County Roscommon there recently, where you step down into the well. So it's the, the Bridget Well, and you know it's the idea of going through things. And even um, there is another tradition. It's called the St Bridget's Girdle. So it's the Chris Frigia. It's a, like a belt, and it's a very big circle. It's like a very large hula hoop, you know, um, our, and hoop of, of straw rope and maybe with crosses kind of on it um, and of straw rope as well. And you'd have to pass through this saying a prayer to Bridget. And the, the women had it easy. They just dropped it over their heads and stepped neatly and nicely out of it saying a prayer to Bridget. But the men had to go in it, you know, right arm first, right leg first, then their head, left arm and left leg out. So it's kind of you have to pass often through portals and again that idea of getting Bridget into the home is really like welcoming and um, but she's really associated with fertility on the land as well so all the crosses would have been left out um, in the farm buildings outside there would have always the old cross might be kept 
and if it was very dried out it might be sprinkled on the crops and a lot of our crosses would actually incorporate some of them would incorporate the potato into the cross or the sheaf of corn so it's a, it's almost like you're really looking to bridge it to protect and yeah. and look after a crop that you haven't even sown yet you yeah, know so and there was even a doll a fundraising doll called a brijog so like a doll effigy of Bridget, but most likely used made with straw as well, blessed straw, and um, and then brought from from house to house by the biddy boys. Like um, and the doll could be known. The Bridog is the word for a bride, but the doll was often known as Biddy. And um, and explain who the Biddy boys were. The Biddy boys were kind of yeah, they were kind of guys dressed in, um, often in straw costume. If there was an excuse during the traditional calendar to go and dress in straw and go in disguise, <laughs> people found a reason to do it. Certainly, men did. I don't know whether we're going to take the tradition back for women now this time. But um, yeah, so the Biddy boys would bring around this doll effigy of Bridget, and so they'd. Want you to welcome Bridget into the into the community, but really they're collecting money for a kind of a party in Bridget's honour. But it's really probably a party for drink and uh, well, and crack, you know. So, for merriment, so they often say, "This is Bridget dressed in white. Give her a penny for this dark night." And so were they dressed something like the Straw Boys themselves? You know, the Straw Boys exactly. that we associate with um, certain parts yeah. of the country. Yeah, you get away with anything if you've covered your, your if you've disguised <laughs> your identity. But while one's ubiquitous, today you would be hard-pressed to find yourself a Bridget. Here's Rona McCreevy of the Irish Times with Ray. Well, the CSO uh, published uh, the statistics relating to babies' names going back to 1964. So we have, what, 50, 59 years, almost 60 years of baby names. And uh, what we've discovered is that uh, the name Bridget has fallen massively out of favour with the Irish population to the extent that the traditional spelling of the name, which is uh, B-R-I-G-I-D, mm. which is what St. Bridget's name is, there were so few uh, babies called uh, Bridget in the years 2014 to 2017 and in 2021 that the CSO won't actually say how many there were, except that there was less than three. So uh, it was a matter of data protection because if there's only one uh, child, say, in 2021 called Bridget, then that child can be identified. Only three. Golly. Although it may have fallen out of favour as a name, it was once shorthand for an Irish woman. And sometimes, well, we behaved badly. Quite badly, throwing off the crochet to skull hooch, give the glad eye and be generally unruly. And sometimes a lot more. With Ryan, Elaine Farrell and Leanne McCormick, the authors of Bad Bridget, Crime, Mayhem and the Lives of Irish Emigrant Women. You call it Brad Bridget, but really Bridget is a bit like what Paddy used to be, isn't it? It's the male, it's the female equivalent of yeah. Paddy, the Paddy Irishman. Yeah, and, and that was sort of why we chose the name Bridget as well. And because it comes up so often, particularly in North America, the, the term Bridget or Biddy and used in that derogatory way, often to apply to all Irish women. So yeah. you, you see people often talking about their servants as as Biddy and Bridget, even though that's not their name. Mm. You know, that's just the, the term that was given. And you see the kind of the images that appear all over North American newspapers of, um, you know, stupid Biddy. She's ignorant. She's she's just, you know, come from the bogs and she doesn't know how to, to manage in these North American um, houses. There's one cartoon that always sort of sticks in my mind. It's off, you see the table, family sitting around a table and 
and Bridget there in her slip and she's holding a bowl of tomatoes and the caption says, this is not what we meant when we said that we wanted the tomatoes undressed. And, you know, it's that sort of, yeah, yeah. she doesn't know how to manage. She's an idiot. In a house. She's yeah, an idiot. Yeah, and, yeah. and for us, it was about sort of reclaiming the name as well yeah. and about saying, hang on, this is about a, a, a wider experience and all of the factors that, that come into play about what, what made Bridget end up in Fascinating, the places it, she ended up. And it does seem that a lot of bad Bridgets took the boat across the water. I mean, we were completely overwhelmed. Really? Yeah. We we knew we were going to find Irish women because we had found them in Ireland and we were expecting they're going to be there. But when we looked at these prison registers, you know, in, in one instance in the 1860s, we have 86% of one single prison is made up of Irish women. They're totally outnumbering every single other nationality, including the native-born American women combined. Oh, okay. um, so, so it's staggering. Uh, did, did you get a, a, a kind of common thread as to why they were there or was it totally case-by-case, case, disparate reasons? For a lot of these women, they're in for crime, for drunkenness or crimes related to drunkenness um, and they're in for petty theft. Yeah. Um, and we, of course, we have then women at, at other extremes who are in for, you know, we've got kidnapping, we've got manslaughter, we've got murder um, in there as well. So there's a wide variety of crime, but, but the vast majority are in for drunkenness and it kind of seems to be um, a stereotype that's nearly self-perpetuating. A drunken a, Irish. Here we a go woman, again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she appears in court and there, she's been charged with drunkenness and because of the stereotype of the mm. Irish drinking, mm. the assumption is, oh, she must be guilty. And if she has a criminal record already, next time she comes into court, they'll just send her down again. There she goes again. And that prevalence of drink could arguably have its roots in loss and trauma. Or in Eleanor's case, just pure bloody-mindedness. When they're coming into the prisons, they will say the reason why they turned towards drink and it'll be a, the death of a child. It'll right. be the breakdown of a relationship. Um, but we also have women who nearly play up the stereotype of the drunken oh, Irish. Okay. We have one woman from Toronto, um, Eleanor David, and she talks about how um, you know she's drunkenly singing in front of um, a concert hall and it takes four policemen four policemen to drag her away, take her to prison. Yeah. And when she comes before the courts, then she says, you know, as long as there's a drop of Irish blood in my body, I am going to drink and I'm not going to stop until the sods of the valley cover me. You know, she's really playing up that idea of the, the drunken Irish um, in court. But compared to our next woman, Eleanor is only in the halfpenny place. Step up, Lizzie Halliday. We came across her in a prison register and it said mm. murder and we thought, OK, we'll see if we can find anything about her. And suddenly... You know, she has her own Wikipedia page. Her infamy is, is related to that she was the first woman in New York to be sentenced to death by the electric chair. She she ends up not being uh, electrocuted in, in the end. She's she's sent to uh, what was then an asylum for the rest of her days. But Lizzie, um, and again, when she dies, the New York Times term her the worst woman in the world because she had she had been sent to to prison originally for um, murdering her husband and and two neighbours. And the thing that really, I think, that captured um, people were so interested in Lizzie's story was that there didn't seem to be any motive for this murder. It wasn't about, she didn't gain anything by, by killing them. It wasn't, yes, it wasn't about wealth, money. It yes, wasn't about yeah. jealousy. There was sort of the, the normal reasons why people might be sure. pushed to murder weren't there for Lizzie Halliday. Um, and then there was more and more investigation into her background. And at one point they even sort of say, you know, she might be you know, she might have been in London at the same time as Jack the Ripper. Is she Jack the Ripper? And she might as well. She, she's sort of saying, you know, don't be daft. This is not, you know, and, and that she'd maybe had a husband in Belfast and she'd killed him as well. And of course, you know, she 
migrated as a child and all sorts of things. And in her past, she seems to have had married a number of elderly men who seemed to die quite quickly after <laughs> after she'd married them. So there were sort of suspicions about what what she'd, she'd been doing. But her behaviour in court was the newspapers, you know, reported on this all the time and often that you know she was like a tigress and a wolf woman and how she looked and what her facial features were were doing as well and was were really reported on um but it's quite clear that Lizzie Halliday you know was mentally ill there were really serious issues and when she goes to the the mental asylum actually she ends up murdering again uh, an attendant there um who she'd become very attached to um and who wanted to was going to leave and and for Lizzie, that that couldn't happen. She couldn't have her leave her. My oh my! But on a less homicidal note, Laura Wilson, whose nickname was the Chameleon Thief, she had this whole uh, strategy of breaking into to houses. Um, but she doesn't seem to. There doesn't seem to have been any financial need um, for this. So what she would do, she'd break into the houses. She'd try on clothes, um, and she would leave the houses wearing the stolen clothes um, and leave her own behind. And <laughs> she loved. Um, they would always know when she had broken into a house when it was her because she left behind her um, rum, which she loved to drink, and the smell of cigarettes because she loved. To so smoke. that was her signature to the exactly. crime. Yeah. Exactly. And and they refer to her as having um, hair like a woman professor, which we're always slightly amused by. I don't (laughs) know. We don't know exactly. I I, I asked both of you uh, as academics to clarify this follicle conundrum. Who knows? But but we find it so amusing to think (laughs) of that. All kinds of images there. Ryan with some bad Bridgets. And on drive time, a celebration of all things spring and those evenings finally getting longer. Just today, we crossed the one-hour mark from the earliest sunset. Okay, so how how exactly does it work then? So right now we're uh, calculating, we calculate the the length of the time between the time of the sunset on the earliest sunset. That took place in December, on the 13th of December last. And so tonight the sun set one full hour and a couple of, uh, and a moment afterwards, uh, later than it set on the 13th of December. How much daylight are we gaining every day? About an hour again in just a little bit less than two minutes in the evening and a minute and a half, just a little bit more than a minute and a half in the morning. So we're looking at a daily gain round about now at uh, about three, three and a half minutes or so. Yes, we like it. That was Ava O'Hanlon of the Grand Owl Stretch Twitter account all prompting Cormac to tell us his spring story. He loves spring. There's this fella in Oikerarua and every 1st of February, Law Breeder, he goes to the pub and he orders a pint of stout and he walks to the front door and he holds it aloft and shouts. <laughs> there you go. That was a great story. I'm really glad you <laughs> saved it up for the radio. <laughs> it's true though. But do you know what it shows? No, honestly, it shows you should tell it again sometime. Like, it that shows that an awful lot of people actually look forward to this time of year. Uh, well, uh, from, go on, beat that. Beat go that on, paper. beat it, yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't think I have anything so exciting. Oh, poor Cormac, getting it from all sides. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Be by your side, I want to be.